Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Good morning, Well family. My name is Mason Taylor. Um, I'm a covenant member here at The Well. My wife, Annabeth, and I serve a few of the uh, foster parents here at The Well. And uh, I am a member of the newly renamed Windsor Park CG. Yeah. Woohoo. Okay, um, so the scripture this morning is from the letter of Paul to Titus, the second chapter, verses one through eight. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is the word of the Lord. What's up, everybody? How we doing? Good, I love it. Um, Well, hey, my name is Yusuf. I'm the college director here, and as usual, I'm grateful um, to be with you all this morning. And, you know, as I was preparing for this sermon, uh, I was reminded of my time in college. I know everyone's experience is different, but for me, college was a time of tremendous spiritual growth. Uh, Many of you know I grew up Muslim, came to Christ in high school, hid my faith for two years until I got to college. And it's hard to describe just the euphoria of being completely immersed in Christian community for the first time after years of isolation. It was amazing right, to to run alongside some of my closest friends in the faith as we pursued Jesus together, ministered together, served together. But it's only been almost six and a half years since I've graduated, and many of the friends I had in college are no longer following Jesus, right? Like many of them have have renounced the faith, and you want to know what most of them have in common? The allure of the worldly culture that we're in played a huge role in their decision to eventually leave the faith. Yet on the other hand, I have friends that were exposed to the same cultural pressures, friends that faced or battled the same lies that said following Jesus wasn't worth it. Lies that claim that there is more fulfillment outside of a relationship with Christ, outside of the church. And yet those friends, though they were exposed to the same cultural pressures, that caused others to fall away. Many of those friends are more in love with Jesus now than they've ever been. And so the question I ask is, if if both parties were exposed to these cultural pressures that tempted them to fall away, then what do you think made the biggest difference between those who endured and continued to spiritually mature and those who didn't? I believe if you were to ask Paul, the author of the passage of what we just read, what he thinks makes the biggest difference, he would say discipleship. Discipleship. 
active discipleship that pushes people towards spiritual maturity is how we remain in the world without becoming of the world. And so in this passage, Titus is, or Paul is writing to Titus, and he's coaching him how to lead people towards spiritually maturity in Christ. Uh, people that are embedded in a culture that seeks to lead them away from Christ, right? Every solution that Paul suggests to Titus revolves around the idea of discipleship. Because discipleship is essential to maturing as Christians, regardless of the cultural context we find ourselves in. So for the past few weeks, we've been in a sermon series on discipleship, journeying through Titus. Um, if you've missed the past two weeks, I would encourage you to go back and listen um, to both sermons, but especially the first one, because it really lays the foundation for our passage today. But if you're new to the well, I'll give you a 30-second synopsis on what we mean by discipleship um, and, and what we've covered so far. So at the well, we believe that being a disciple of Christ means to love, serve, and follow Jesus with all of ourselves. Therefore, making disciples or discipleship is teaching others how to love, serve, and follow Jesus. And so Tori's done a great job. I'm not just saying this because he's my boss. He's done a great job the past two weeks showing how personal discipleship, that's more one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two or three, um, and corporate discipleship, which is more kind of Sunday gatherings, Bible studies, community groups, are both essential to growing in our faith. Therefore, holistic discipleship incorporates them both. You can reference the diagram. And so in last week's passage, Paul focuses more on the corporate elements of discipleship. In today's passage, he switches gears and focuses more on personal discipleship as he sheds light on what is truly required for personal discipleship relationships to remain healthy and promote spiritual maturity. So there you go. That's a, how's that for a 30-second synopsis, right? I know some of y'all are thinking, bro, that was not 30 seconds. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, it was 30 seconds. I just didn't tell you it was 30 seconds African time, all right? Uh, side note, if you're ever invited to like a Nigerian party or a Nigerian wedding, make sure to show up two hours after the official start time. And that's just if you want to help set up, right? Show up three hours after for when the party actually starts. That was free. All right, so here's where we're going today. If active discipleship that pushes us towards spiritual maturity is the key to remaining in the world without becoming of the world, if that's the target, then how do we know if we're on the right track? as disciples or as we disciple others? What are the signs of spiritual maturity? And there's a lot you can say about this, but in our passage, we'll see a few signs that, that we can seek to embody in our discipleship relationships. And when seen, these signs can give us some confidence to know, okay, we're on our way, right? Day by day, we're not perfect, but we are progressing spiritually. And so first, let's, let's define our target. What do I mean by spiritual maturity? Um, well, Paul gives us a strong clue as to the answer in the first verse of chapter 2. Paul tells Titus in verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Stop. What's the, what's the first thing we tend to think of when we hear the words sound doctrine? Right? We immediately think of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, which is a seminary-grade textbook on theology that's like this thick. Right? When we hear sound doctrine, we think of heady theological concepts that we can just talk about for hours. But this is why the moment I said sound doctrine, all of my theology nerds were like, yes, right? Finally, get to talk about the good stuff, penal substitutionary atonement, free will versus predestination. And I hate to break it to all my theology buffs, but that is not what Paul means when he says, teach what is in accords with sound doctrine. And so what does Paul mean? 
Yes, he's talking about the word of God, but even more so, he means a lifestyle that is directly influenced by what we learn about God through his word, right? The, the word sound in the Greek is hugiaino, which means to be in good health. It's where we get our word for hygiene in English. And so Paul's definition of sound doctrine is not just healthy thinking, but it's healthy thinking that promotes healthy living. The, the two are integrated, right? Which is the same when we think about good hygiene, right? So if I don't brush my teeth and my breath is just wretched, and you're like, Yusuf, man, are you okay? Like, why are you letting yourself go? What would you think if I was like, no, 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 let me tell you what's going on. You see, there's bacteria in my mouth that feeds on the food that's stuck in between my teeth and it poops out odor, what we classify as bad breath. So theoretically, I should brush my teeth. But what would you think if that's what I spouted off to you? You'd be like, just, just stop talking, right? Like, please stop talking. Because it's, an, it's not enough to know the science of what happens every day when we don't brush our teeth, right? Your knowledge of that should lead you to actually brush your teeth. Only then does it count as good hygiene. Does that make sense? Yeah. Healthy thinking is very important, but it's not meant to stay in the brain. It's, it's meant to be lived out. And that's what Paul means by sound doctrine. Notice how immediately after he says that, teach what is in accords with sound doctrine, he doesn't go into a list of theological concepts. Rather, he lists characteristics and behaviors that Christ followers in the church should work towards embodying. In other words, the things I learn about Christ should directly influence the, the way that I live. My beliefs should directly influence my behavior. And this isn't the first time that Paul says this. He says it in the very first verse of the very first chapter of this book, where he says knowledge of the truth should lead to a godly lifestyle. And so understanding why Paul is so repetitive about this idea will actually help us form our definition of spiritual maturity. Why is Paul so adamant and repetitive about the idea of belief and behavior being integrated? Because it's possible for what we learn about Christ to have zero influence on how we live for him, right? To have zero influence on the way that we behave. It's possible for that to be the reality. And Paul isn't the only one that thinks that. Jesus said that that's a possible reality too. He says very bluntly in Luke 6:46, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? It's, it's possible for our lips to say one thing, but our lives to suggest something completely different. For our lips to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master. I, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but our lives suggests we're being discipled, we're disciples of something or someone else, right? And for Jesus to suggest that that's a possible reality is sobering. It's sobering and should be for everyone in here, including myself, because if that's true, it means that it's possible to do what we just did and what we're doing now, to, to sing songs about the reign of Christ, to lift up the name of Jesus, to, to consume information about God, to philosophize about the things of God, to go to church, to sit through sermons, to go to Bible studies throughout the week, to meet up for coffee and talk about God for hours. It's possible to learn everything there is to know about God and yet remain spiritually immature and unchanged. That's sobering, y'all. And this is what Paul is addressing in the rest of our passage when he says, teach what is in accords with sound doctrine. 
And this is the foundation for our definition of spiritual maturity. If spiritual maturity isn't just what we know or learn or what we say with our lips, then what is it? To put it simply, to mature spiritually is to become more and more like Christ. Not just in how we talk or how we think, but how we live. And we become more like Christ when we learn to love him, right? And learn to live for him. The, the more we love Christ with all of ourselves, the more we start to look like him. In other words, the more we become more and more spiritually mature. Therefore, to love God involves both learning about him through the reading of his word and living it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're integrated. They're integrated. It's also why Jesus says, hey, if you love me, you'll obey me. Yeah. To, to love Christ is to live for Christ. Yeah. To live for Christ is to love Christ. And over time... As we continually live and consistently learn what it looks like to live for him and to love him day by day, step by step, doesn't happen overnight, but over time, we'll begin to look more like him and thus grow in spiritual maturity. An act of discipleship that is guided by the word and empowered by the spirit is the process by which we learn how to love God and learn how to live for him regardless of the influence of culture. And so that's the target, Christ-likeness. And personal discipleship helps get us there. And so how do we ensure that we are progressing towards Christ-likeness as disciples in our personal discipleship relationships? The rest of this passage gives us things to look for, right? As we disciple others, as we are disciples of Christ ourselves, these are signs that can give us confidence that, man, we are step-by-step growing in spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. So let's dive in. As Titus addresses the older people in his congregation, verses 3 and 4, show us that teachability is a sign of spiritual maturity. What do I mean by teachability? According to verse 3, Titus is not only to urge the older women to grow in Christ-likeness themselves through how they behave, but verse 4 mentions that they are also called to teach the younger woman also, to disciple the younger woman also. They are to teach the younger women to grow in Christ-like behavior and also teach them how to love their husbands and their children as they prioritize their family. Now, verse 5 gets even more specific on how, they're, how they are to disciple younger women in that church. As it says, teach the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and submissive to their husbands. Stop. Stop. Before I move on, let me just address this part of the text, Right? because we have a tendency to read passages like this the wrong way because of the society we live in. Let me say plainly, this text is not saying that women with families shouldn't work. And it's also not suggesting that Christian women who stay at home are any less holy than those who don't stay at home are any less holy than those who are. So this text is saying that the younger women in that culture, they need to be taught, they need to be reminded to work on their home life but that isn't telling them to only work at home, right? If it wanted to say, teach them to only work at home, never leave the house, that's what the text would say. But if, if that's what the Bible was saying, then Proverbs 31 wouldn't be in the Bible. Where, where you have women, like a, a godly woman that is praised for buying and selling land and providing for her family in different ways. So it can't be saying that. So what is it saying? He's saying that women in that culture that have chosen to get married and have chosen to to start a family, they have a weighty responsibility of actively discipling their children in the Lord and fostering a marriage that reflects the gospel. Because biblically speaking, 
Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the gospel where the husband is tasked with dying, with laying down his life for his bride, dying to himself for the sake of his wife's flourishing, just like Christ did for the church. And in response to that, in response to such selfless sacrifice, the woman is called to submit to his leadership. That is to say, as you lead through serving and laying down your life for me and my family, I desire to follow you and submit to your leadership. And when done right, Tim Keller calls this this beautiful dance that reflects the gospel. There's no inferiority in that. There's no value difference in that. It's how God has biblically ordained marriage to glorify and point to his mysterious love and his mysterious sacrifice for, the, for his people, the church, right? But it's true back then, as it's true now, that raising a family and fighting for a healthy marriage are two incredibly difficult things to do. And so in order for the young women to not succumb to the cultural pressures around them, they needed to be actively discipled by older, more spiritually mature women that could help them grow in these areas. And so these younger women, they needed to be teachable. In other words, they they needed to be willing to learn from people who were more spiritually mature than themselves, right? If they themselves were gonna become mature believers, they needed to learn and be teachable from other mature believers. If we are going to mature in Christ, we need to be teachable. We, We need to be people who seek out being personally discipled by people who are a little further along in the faith than us. And so that could mean an older man or an older woman. It doesn't have to, but it could mean an older man or an older woman who's had more time in the faith, more experience living out their faith in a culture that doesn't make it easy. Learning from older, spiritually mature Christians has to be valued in the church because our culture does not encourage this. Generally speaking, our our culture idolizes youth, right? And looks down on growing older and wiser. I I think one of the biggest lies out there when it comes to living a full life is that you peak at 22. And Taylor Swift ain't the only one to blame for that lie, right? I mean, some of y'all, the moment you turn 23, you're like, oh man, I guess it's just all downhill from here. I'm just like, what? You know, as a college director, I spend time on campus, obviously. I wish you could see the face of my students when I tell them that I'm 30. They're like, you're 30? Dang, I didn't know you were that old. Old? Man, where our culture undervalues growing mature, the church does the opposite. We celebrate when there are people that have been walking with the Lord for some time, right? Following Jesus isn't easy. And it's easier for people to fall away when they're not being actively disciples. So we desire to learn from. We're teachable. We soak up wisdom. We, we learn from the people that have walked with Jesus over the years, walking out their faith in the broken world that we live in, Right? And so for those of you that have been following the Lord for some time, we need you as a church. As a younger church, we need to be teachable and intentional about gleaning wisdom from you, right? From some of the older people in here that that have just walked with the Lord for for some time. Teachability is a sign of spiritual maturity. Humility is also a sign of spiritual maturity. And we'll see why through this next section. But first, let's move up a few verses And talk about what Titus is to teach the older men in his congregation. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded. That's not just saying don't be drunk on alcohol. It's saying don't be drunk on anything. That as you grow older, you are to fight against being ruled by addictions. 
right, that can cloud your judgment and and cause you to make brash decisions. Be sober-minded. Be temperate. He says, be dignified, which means worthy of honor, right? This isn't about cultural status. Once again, it's about spiritual maturity. And so here, Paul is suggesting just because someone is older doesn't mean that they have cornered the market on spiritual wisdom because age doesn't automatically equate to spiritual maturity, Being worthy of honor has nothing to do with wealth, career, age, or fame. It means you have a reputation of being someone who allows their belief in Christ to impact their behavior consistently over the long haul. That's your reputation and therefore worthy of honor. I think it's also important to remember that this isn't as much about age. I mentioned this, but I'll restate it as much as it is about spiritual maturity because we often assume that Man, we need someone who's at least 20 years older than us to disciple us for it to count as active discipleship that promotes spiritual maturity. Then I think about Jeremiah, right? The prophet, was he, was he spiritually mature? He was 17 when God called him. Or Joseph, was he spiritually mature when he fled from Potiphar's wife and, and became an example for all of us on what it looks like to flee temptation? He was 24, And so are we humble enough to be discipled by people who may not be that much more older than us, but have shown through continual submission to Christ that they can help us grow spiritually as we seek to become more and more like Christ. He then says, older men are to be self-controlled, the same idea of sober-minded, keep my passions under control, that even as I age, I'm still serious about killing sin, right? And then he says, be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Everything that Titus is tasked with teaching the older men, all these behaviors, they don't come with age in the culture that they live in. And I would argue it's the same now. And yet, once again, we are seeing how active discipleship is how we mature spiritually in this world without becoming of the world. What's really fascinating about this is you have Titus, who's much younger, mind you, than, a lot, than all of the older people he's addressing. Yet he's helping them grow in Christ's likeness through active discipleship. And in that, the older crowd in his church are modeling humility that leads to spiritual maturity. Because there's not a word that they would receive from Titus, right? They wouldn't receive this from Titus if they weren't humble enough to receive biblical truth from a man despite his youth. This is the kind of humility that is essential to spiritual maturity. As someone who grew up Nigerian, this part of the text is actually just fascinating to me because I'm very proud of the fact that my parents instilled me with with respect for my elders, but it's definitely assumed that, that, man, with age just automatically comes wisdom. So anytime an older person talks, you just need to listen to them, right? Growing up as a family, we would pray together every morning, and afterwards, my dad would sit our entire family down, and he would begin to just share his wisdom. He'd give us a lecture and sometimes for hours. And though I'm grateful, for these, I'm grateful for these mornings, even though we don't have the same faith anymore, um, one of the things that's really hard to imagine is if I would have told him, hey, Dad, how about you sit down, right? And let me as your son tell you and teach you what it looks like to mature spiritually in your old age. You know, just the thought of that, just the thought of that makes me squirm. I can hear his voice, right? He'd probably say something like, Yusuf, are you crazy? Come on, my friend, you better sit down before I give you a dirty slap, right? And a response like that would make sense because it's not normal for someone who's young in age to teach someone who's older in age about spiritual maturity. But in Christianity, 
we are all ultimately submitted to Christ. And so we can be humble when hearing truth from the word of God, even if it's through a medium of a younger voice. I think there are also other ways that humility should mark us as we mature in our relationships with Christ. One of my favorite concepts in psychology is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And there's a graph that illustrates this well, but the Dunning-Kruger effect states that the less you know about something, the more confident you are in how much you know about that something, right? But the more you learn, the more your confidence in how much you know begins to drop. Why? Because the more you learn, the more you realize how much more there is to learn. And so over time, your confidence slowly rises, but, but at a rate that is much more humble because you've been humbled many times through the process of learning about something that is way more complicated than you originally thought, right? Now, I know I just put half of y'all to sleep, but why do I share this? Because according to Romans 11.33 and other texts, God is inexhaustible, which means we will never stop learning about him for the rest of eternity, right? And so, okay, so how should that doctrine impact my behavior? It should humble me. Because regardless of how much I know about Christ, how much I've learned about Christ and what he commands, there is always more I can learn and always more I can grow in. It doesn't matter how much I know about evangelism. There is always more to learn, which should humble me and keep me from growing arrogant or comparing myself to other people. It doesn't matter how much I know about theology. There's always more to learn and will forever be more to learn. And that should keep me from growing arrogant and comparing myself to other people. Fill in the blank. It doesn't matter how much you know about God or have learned about God. There's always more to learn. And the more I learn about God, the more I'm reminded that I will never come to the end of him and will spend the rest of eternity marveling at the depths of his character. It's easier to be humble when I realize that. That regardless of how much finite knowledge I have, we're talking about an infinite God. Yes. Humility is required for spiritual maturity. Yes. And sometimes the areas where I exhibit the most spiritual pride are ironically the areas where I need to mature the most. Because Christ is the antithesis of pride. So it doesn't matter how much I know. If I'm prideful, I obviously have a long way to go when it comes to imitating Christ. Humility is required for spiritual maturity. Here's ultimately what all of that means. You don't have to know everything as a Christian to disciple other Christians. You just need to be a little further along spiritually than the person that you're discipling, right? There will always be both someone that you can pour into and someone that can pour into you. In both cases, it's required to remember we are all on the same path of spiritual maturity, and none of us arrive fully on this, side of, on, on this side of eternity. Moving on to verse 7, Paul tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity. You see, Paul brings this idea of sound doctrine full circle by telling Titus, oh yeah, Titus, as you teach them to live out sound doctrine, make sure that you also model for them yourself how to live out what they are learning by the way that you live out what you're learning. And here we have another sign of spiritual maturity, modeling the lifestyle of a disciple to the people we're discipling is crucial to maturing spiritually. It's not enough to know that we should live out what we learn. We've got to model it. We've got to show with our own, eyes what, with our own lives what it looks like to live out what we learn. 
Modeling is crucial to spiritual maturity. But to be honest, it's, it's crucial to maturing or growing in anything. I mean, personally, I love theory. I love contemplating ideas, right? I graduated magna cum laude in engineering. So as a result, I was feeling myself when I graduated. And so I got my first job. I was expecting, I was expecting everything I knew in my head to enable me to come in and make an immediate impact. It was gung-ho. I'm going to make an impact in corporate. Until the first day of work, first day, so much of what I was hearing was just going over my head on day one, right? I was like, what are these people talking about? And that was just orientation. Like we hadn't even gotten to the really hard stuff yet. It was humbling because as a recent grad, you come in with all this theory, right? And not only do you know that what you know is pennies compared to people that have been working there for years, but you also realize that just because you know theory doesn't mean you know how to apply it right? None of you guys would get on a plane with a pilot who has never actually flown a plane before, even if they've memorized an entire textbook on how to fly a plane. You ever flown a plane before? No, but I memorized the textbook on it and I can say it in Greek and Hebrew. That wouldn't fly and you know it. <laughs> so how did I grow as an engineer if theory wasn't enough? Well, my first year I was practically useless, to be honest. My company probably lost money on me. And that's no secret, they know it, but having older engineers model good practice, model good problem solving, watching them experiment, learning from their example and receiving constructive feedback, that's how I grew. And that's the sort of modeling that we need if we're going to grow spiritually as well. I can think of more examples. I'm three years into college ministry, got a lot to learn, but I've learned a ton from a lot of people including some of my wife and I's dear friends, Jacob and Milana Brown. Within the first couple of weeks of me moving to Austin, Jacob reached out to me and was like, hey man, you wanna grab some tacos at Torchy's? And I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure I thought it would just be me and him getting to know each other. But what it ended up being was me being a fly on the wall while he shared the gospel with Garrett Carbs, right? A college student who is now following Jesus and actually serves on our prayer team here at The Well three years later. And so, man, I've read books about evangelism, right? But I've been most formed in times when, when someone has modeled for me what it looks like to live out what I'm learning. And, and modeling for others requires that we let people into our lives. But many of us don't do that, right? We don't let people in because we feel like we have to project perfection to the people that we're leading. And that, could, that couldn't be any more false. I think some of the most powerful discipleship moments I've witnessed have come from leaders that, that I trusted that allowed me to see some of their weaknesses, allowed me to see how they struggled sometimes, so that I knew that the very same grace that they're preaching to me is grace they need themselves and walk in themselves. There, there are a lot of moms here at the well who are faithfully discipling their children, a calling that is not all that gla glamorous and is often underappreciated. And I know in my head that humility is important, but seeing a mom apologize to their two-year-old for a mistake that they made, modeled humility in a way that led to such a disciple, a, a powerful discipleship moment, right? Not just for their kid, but for me. As disciples that are seeking to grow spiritually, are we allowing people in our lives to model for us and encourage us to model for others? People that they themselves are growing spiritually. And therefore, they model spiritual maturity and humility. People that won't position themselves over you or shame you, but will challenge you to live out the truth. Yeah. 
in love and model for you healthy, godly living. Finding people like that to pour into us is not an option if we are going to stand firm against the tide of our culture and, and if we are going to continue to mature spiritually in our personal discipleship relationships. It's not just enough to learn. We've got to live it out. And modeling is requ required for this. At the end of our passage, Paul in verse 7 and 8, he urges Titus to be a model of good works so that any opponent trying to accuse him of evil would be put to shame. But I'm confident, even just as I was preaching this morning, that the shame that Paul talks about, this shame that our opponents should feel when they look at our lives is oftentimes shame that we feel when we look at our lives. Because deep down, if we're honest, we know there are a million areas where we fall short of allowing what we've learned about God or what we say about God to fully influence the way we live for God. Sometimes it can feel like, man, I'm taking 10 steps forward spiritually and then 10 steps back as I follow Jesus. And the cycle of shame produced by that can keep us stuck, can keep us from progressing spiritually. So what do we do then with the shame of falling short? Do we attempt to clean ourselves up? Man, I'm just gonna do better, I'm gonna make all these promises. Do we give up entirely? No. We first acknowledge that left to our own strength, we are doomed to never grow spiritually. But when we look to Jesus, Man, when we look to the cross, we are reminded that regardless of our age, we serve a God of a thousand second chances, as Quinn reminded us a few weeks ago. This is a God that, that so loved this world that he stepped out of heaven. And though he was the very word of God lived out to perfection, though he was the, the perfect fulfillment of sound doctrine, he died a shameful death on the cross in the greatest act of love and humility known to man. Why would he do that? so that those of us who place our faith in him as, as Lord can have our shame removed and receive forgiveness and grace over and over and over again. And when fully embraced, this grace becomes a sign of spiritual maturity when it transforms us and empowers us to pick one another up when we fall because we're covered by the blood and shame has no grip on us. Christ has secured our identity as children. And so now we are learning to walk out our identity as new creations through active discipleship. And so a few practical applications as we close. All throughout Paul's letters, he's encouraging the church sometimes. He's telling them, hey, there are some things that you're doing that you, you should definitely keep up. But then he challenges them sometimes, tells them, hey, there are some things that you're doing that you should, you should probably stop. Since sound doctrine is learning and living, here's some questions that can help us ensure that what we're learning about God through his word is actually shaping our lifestyle. There are two questions I love to ask at the end of any community group, at the end of any sermon, I write down, man, what am I doing well and where do I need to grow, right? Where do I need to grow? What, what am I challenged to believe and obey? And is there anyone that can hold me accountable? Another question, am I, am I being personally discipled by someone who shows signs of spiritual maturity and challenges me to grow spiritually, right? If you're like, man, the answer to that is no, I would encourage you start with the community group where you can go and get to know people and be corporately discipled and then hone in on someone who has shown that their lifestyle is worthy of high honor, 
and you ask them to disciple you. I encourage my college students all the time. Man, you guys are pouring out like crazy on campus. But I encourage them to find a CG and find people that are a little further along in life than them that can begin to pour into them as well. Another question. Are my discipleship relationships guided by the word and empowered by the spirit? Because I'm not trying to make a disciple of Yusuf. Making a disciple of Christ. It's from his word. We have a discipleship class that's actually going on right now and it will be happening again in the second gathering that teaches us a very, a very basic but incredibly powerful framework for how to structure our time and be guided by the word and empowered by the spirit in our own personal discipleship relationships. So if you missed the ones today, I would encourage you to sign up for classes in the future. Because personal discipleship that's guided by the word and empowered by the spirit is how we continue on the path of spiritual maturity, not swayed by the enemy's lies or the culture that we live in. And so would we pursue them faithfully as a church family, as we learn to love God, and as we learn to live for our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you just for today, Lord. We get to gather as a people. We don't take this for granted, Lord. I pray that, that your Holy Spirit would begin to illuminate your word and begin to convict us in areas that we need to be convicted and challenge us, be encouraged, encourage us in areas that, that we need to be encouraged, God. God, I pray that for those of us in this room that aren't in active personal discipleship relationships, would you do what only you can do, God? My words fall short, but the word of God empowered coming to life by the spirit of God is what changes lives. And so I ask that all of us would be continually transformed as we're guided by your word and empowered by your spirit in our own discipleship relationships, Lord. We love you. We're thankful for what you've done. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey everybody, thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.